So we built, I built a full rack. I remember it to this day. It was on this big brown sling with all these hexes and wires and mismatched kind of bunch of kit. And then so by the time I was sort of 15 and coming to that year, I had a proper rack of gear, but we'd found every single piece. We hadn't bought any of it. <laughs> like my parents wouldn't buy me any. They were like, you know, they weren't going to encourage it on that level, but they couldn't kind of hold it back. So yeah, so it was just done in that sort of, a real authentic passion just to be in the mountains and be climbing. That was all that mattered, like day in, day out. And it was, and the, but that was when, as you know, we, you sort of spend a lot of time in these places. You suddenly, you find the community of people out there. And then that was, yeah, that was the next step, which was great. And then you re, you meet the characters and the, and there was a fantastic scene in Wales at that time. I was very lucky, really. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Johnny had done Indian Fate and so on. I mean, I was only 86. It was only eight years before, nine years before. This is Patch Hammond, who you'll remember from the last episode. He's a bit of an enigma, I suppose. Not to those who know him, but he's not someone who's ever sought the limelight for his climbing. This seemed the obvious way to end this series. Patch said that Leo's account of El Nino had brought back some great memories, but their versions are slightly different mainly due to their perspective on the whole thing. And for Leo, it was the start of one great adventure, becoming this professional climber. For Patch, it seems like it was just another excuse for an adventure. All the way through this series, I've had this question about motivation in the back of my mind. What compels climbers to be driven to their particular goals? In Dave Thomas's story, I was thinking about it in terms of authentic desire. Do some people just have this intrinsic drive that helps them to achieve or experience things? I'm not really sure, but my loose conclusion from talking to Dave was that whatever he experiences intrinsic motivation probably comes from other sources, just less explicitly. One of the first things Patch and I talked about when I rang him was that he'd had this photo of his hero, Alex Huber, that had inspired him. It was a picture of Alex on the Salafé wall. I think it was on the front cover of On the Edge back in about 1995. This was exactly the same way that I'd had that picture of Leah holding a few years later. It's a really grounding thing in climbing. The places you visit, the experience you have, has such a huge overlap with all of your own heroes, even if you're climbing different routes or driven by different things. I guess in my early years of climbing, it felt much more an us-and-them world. There were the people who appeared in the magazines, uh, guidebooks, coffee table books, who were another class of climber as far as I was concerned. And some of them really were. The hard rock climbing world of the 1970s that really inspired me was a world away from the climbing world that I came to know. And then I started to meet some of them. While I might not have measured up as a climber, I was definitely part of the same community. And climbing for me was still this world of unreachable heroes. They were the myths and legends, collections of impressive anecdotes, rather than real people. They were demigods. And I have referenced different kinds of classical heroes in a few episodes in this series. And one of the reasons I really like the classical heroes is that they're flawed. They don't understand themselves very well all the time. I guess I wonder, do do these kind of heroes still exist in the climbing world? Will our current generation of climbers, mostly coming out of the walls now, will they have the same impact in the future? Or does our kind of oversharing social media culture, combined with the rise of indoor climbing, safety-conscious society, and climbing being a much more mainstream sport... Does it actually mean that there are no more heroes? At least not in this classical sense that they were to me. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. 
So, so I was being, I mean, they were my heroes, so, but you still had a lot of them around. So we quickly met um, characters like George Smith, uh, Noel Crane, um, real gentle, really great people as well. Very motivated. Adam Wainwright became a very good friend of mine. Um, I mean, who else was there? I mean, there's a whole, it's just like a great scene of characters. Johnny Dawes was still there. Paul Pritchard was still climbing. There's people like Trevor Hodgson, Steve Mayers, who owned the Beacon. There was a great scene of good climbers. And then the Orm had its own community of um, sort of Ormites, sort of real regulars from Plandidno and up and down the coast. I then got to know the sort of younger generation, people like Neil Dyer, um, Will Perrin, Jim Perrin's son, who became a very good friend. Um, I think Pete Robbins moved down to North Wales. And then obviously Leo came down when he was 15. So suddenly there was just this very healthy scene of people who are relatively young, but by that point I sort of got to 16 and we were all on sighting, he's 67, we sort of become good climbers. But it was, yeah, it was exciting. And it was a real total, probably a bit of a backlash almost as well to the scene that had gone on before, which was all sport climbing based. We'd sort we'd done a bit. We'd climb in 8A and a bit harder. We sort of climbed okay. But we just, that suddenly became very unimportant. And it was all back, we were more inspired by the, the Gogarth big roots and the Wenzorn and that, that sort of generation who'd been involved in that scene a little bit more. I don't know if there's a particular reason. It was maybe just a collection of influences where I was quite into my sport climbing. And, but, and the trad as well. Uh, Leo was very much influenced by Johnny at the time and, there was more, and he was brilliant, brilliant trad climber. And he, he was, if, it, if we were planning what we're going to do today, Leo wouldn't put his hand up and say, let's go and try and do liquid amber. Or let's go, that wasn't going to happen. So it would be like, we've got this thing to go and let's go and try Mr. Softy in the back wall of Wenzorn. Or we saw this new route of Castle Helen, let's go and try that. Or the motivation was in that direction. Uh, or the slate quarries. We wanted to go and do the quarry man, or we wanted to go and do uh, windows of perception, all those kind of routes. And I think I, I don't know. I don't. Th- it wasn't really a conscious thing. It wasn't like, oh, we're not interested in sport climbing. It was just so. It seemed more exciting being at the base of Wenzorn, looking up this like tottering three hundred foot. It was. I think we. Were, I think we were a bit more hungry for that kind of adventure. That's what it seemed to be about. But that period back then, so, yeah, I think Owen Zarek was a big one for me. And that made me realise that maybe I'm not bad at this climbing. And then I did second ascent of Nick Dixon's Gram Negative, which is the 760, did that ground up. Again, because we were just such cocky little gits. Because as in the pub with Tim, and Tim said it'll never be done ground up. Because the first moves, like, this really our boulder problem where you pinch this rat. And you release your feet and you cut loose and you do this wild swing above this horrendous landing. And he's just that sort of move, no one will ever do ground up. So I was like, right, bollocks at this, we're going to go ground up his E7. So we did that. And I think the other one I got quite well known for, we on-sighted Rape by Affection, the John Redhead E7 on Rainbow Slab. But that was a test of boldness, I think. That was. So they were scary. Um, we were the, the, doing that was... We were interested in putting ourselves in very dangerous situations and how you kind of deal with it and getting experience at dealing with it. This, me and Leo were the same. We both wanted to one-sighted in face. It was, we had the same stupid goal. 
that was always because I've never top roped it. I never would go on it on the rope. It was always that I thought about it really seriously a lot. Um, and then I kind of thought that's maybe face Mecca might be the one to try. Um, which is Nick Dixon's Drew because I was as inspired by that as I mean, Indian Face is obviously the incredible line. So, but that's because they were they were our role models. They were our heroes. Johnny Dawes, Nick Dixon, um, and Gresham became a very good friend, and he'd obviously been through a real personal experience on the Indian Face. Um, yeah, really, and, and knowing Neil's climbing quite well, and that's not his natural domain, sort of out there, slabby. He probably won't mind me saying that, but his ability to pull himself through that was extraordinary. So I was really, I was very inspired by all those individuals and the fact that this was one of the great routes and and feeling that we were getting better and better on sighting because that was all we were interested in. We dropped the whole headpoint game, really. I certainly did. And on sighting felt like the real challenge, really. And, and the more you did of it, the better you got it. The faster you read moves, the better you see the gear placements, the, the better you get more savvy at it all. I think if I didn't go on that year's trip with Leo, we probably would have, that might, because that was a changer really. So what happened was when we, we did all this stuff in Wales and um, did a lot in the Slakewise, we had a good stab at um, the Quarryman, um, and we did windows, windows of Perception, all that. We did a lot of that through, it was the, it was the spring, summer of 1998. And we were sort of, I had a bit of time out for my A-levels. Um, Leo had sacked all that in probably quite wisely and was, was I was getting quite jealous. He was like doing trauma and plowing on with all this climbing. I was studying away. So by the end of that summer, we then decided to go on this nine month climbing trip. I think if we hadn't have done that and we'd have stayed in Wales and we'd have carried on the vein we were on with the sort of localised focus for all the routes, I wouldn't have been surprised if one of us had a, probably Leo would have had a go. Um, he used to have sleepless nights over it. <laughs> he really used to bother him. Um, I think it could have happened. Someone might have tried it that period, just the, the where we were in our, in our heads and the confidence we had at the time and uh, and how what we, we were really used to the type of rock and the style of climbing and it was ingrained in us really. Um, but we did then go away for a year and then I then, we, nine months, then we got back and I went away for another year. Um, so I didn't actually really climb in the UK and North Wales for two years and that was when we changed direction with this focus on travelling and big walls and and longer adventures. Um, so I think that was when we never really, I know Leo never moved back to North Wales after that. Summer 98 is when we went to Yosemite and that's where I met Ben Bransby for the first time, who a complete hero of mine as well. He's, he's, I didn't quite realize how good he was until we got to Yosemite. So that kind of continued. We're all, we're all still kids. We're still 18. We were proper kids. I look now at these sort of, some of the kids who climb here in Stronghold who were 18, 17. And I'm like, shit, that's how old we were. They, they're just like, oh, we're looking forward to doing our first trad route. And they're all crushing in here, strong as hell. And, but they're all a bit nervous about getting out there. And I'm like, God, at that age, we were, thought we could go anywhere and do anything. We were just like, let's just bugger off here and there. So I forget how young we were. Um, but maybe there's not people doing like what I had where youths turn up 
at the crag and there's a generation 10 years older who'll take them under their wing and spend the time with them. That whole scene of the late 90s in North Wales, it was just a very trad-focused world. For us, it was about adventure, on sighting, good bunch of people, and we all got quite good. And then I guess, yeah, I, I listened to Leo's podcast, and he's got a fantastic memory for that period. And I guess because he stood on stage and spoken about it for 20 years, so um, he's got it well-versed in his, in his mind. So, But he's very right in what we said. We arrived in Yosemite not thinking El Capitan was the objective, not thinking that even Half Dome or anything was really, there were some boots on the Sentinel, which Adam Wainwright had done with Ronaldo Gabrotti, which he'd drawn topos for them, and they were like 512A. So we thought they might be what we'd have a crack at. We thought that might be within our, because obviously El Capitan was Salafé. I mean, I had a poster of Alex Schuber on Salafé on my wall. It was like, for that picture of him in the endurance corner, it just blew my mind. And obviously, Lynn Hill's the nose, and... That was kind of all there was. So we didn't have that on our radar as, as a viable thing for this chip. And Leo's right. We were a bit like, oh, you've just come from North Wales where everyone's climbing 150-foot hard walls. Yosemite must be full of them. And we were a bit like, let's go and blow the Americans' mind with our 150-foot head points or on-sites or whatever. And then you get there and your mind is just blown by the scale of it. And those little buttresses down below you, the idea of going spending a day on them just seems ridiculous. I mean, I wasn't actually that fit when we went, because I just, I remember I'd slashed my fingers quite badly. I had about six, like four or five weeks out, and I'd done my A-levels not long before, so I wasn't on top, top four. So we just went cragging, and we were like, well, let's go climbing. And then we realised how hard it all was. Like five 11D finger cracks, and five 11B off fingers and, and it was like my god it, it was another world I mean we just hadn't done that type of crack climbing and then climbing for like a pitch after pitch of jamming it was it was we found it desperate and so but Leo was a funny case how I remember it when we were there because he was climbing better so me I ended up the main team became myself for me myself Ben Bransby and Leo and we would just bob around doing lots of stuff. And Leo was clearly climbing, I thought, better than both of us. And Ben was probably climbing a bit better than myself. Um, but Leo didn't really do any climbing when we were there. And I discussed this with him later. It was strange. This is why I never quite understand him, because he would go bouldering quite a lot. But I was doing lots of work going out and trying to do multi, like, learn how to climb this bloody stuff. And Leo would turn up for a day with us, flash everything. Then he just seemed to vanish again. And he'd just be doing, talking to everyone, getting to know the locals. And he'd be like, oh, I've met this guy here. He's really cool. And I've met him. And he'd, he just seemed to be sort of hanging out in the camp, getting into the life of the place. Whereas I was a bit more like the earnest British trad climber, like, no, I've got to learn how to climb this stuff and heading out. So we were putting a lot of work in and, and we didn't see much of him for a couple of weeks. He was literally just hanging out on the top of El Cap. He was like doing bridge rope swings off the top of El Cap and things. Like just doing like ridiculous stuff. Whereas me and Ben were like, let's just go climbing. This is mega. So, so what ended up happening was my first big thing we did was 
Ben Bransby and I, because we got to know the Huber brothers quite well. And we'd go for, which for me was, I mean, real heroes of mine, and Thomas as much as Alex for the stuff he'd done. So they were great to climb with, and we went bulging with them, we had good fun with them. And, and they'd just done Freerider after El Nino, which is like made quite famous now by the Free Solo film. And um, it's basically Salathe light. It's like avoiding some of the harder pitches and making way up Salathe. So Ben and I got taught into trying to climb that by the Cubas. So that was really our first change where we were like, we're actually going to go and try and free climb El Cap. So Leo was right. I mean, he, Leo wasn't involved in any of this. He was sort of jumping off the top and doing bridge swings and things. And so me and Ben had this sort of discussion. We got all this gear together. We had no portal edge. We had a crappy haul bag we'd got hold of. And then we just thought, well, let's have a, have a go. Um, and that was really where we wanted to take our sort of spirit of ground upping from the UK to the big wall. And we're like, because they were a bit like, what, the top crux pictures all high up and they were doing this, why don't you come down and try the top ones and do this and all that. We were like, no, we start at the bottom and we keep going. And so we set off. And again, and I think this is maybe what Leo refers to is, um, I mean, the first 10 pictures of El Cap, of um, Free Riders, Free Blast, which actually really suited us. But that's all vertical, slabby, crimson stuff and little delicate moves. And we found it fine. And we were like, well, this is encouraging because it was kind of up our street. So we got climbed up and the hauling, we, I mean, I'd never Jumard. Maybe a little bit down the cave once, but I really didn't know what I was doing. Hauling, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. I mean, it really was exhausting. And we were just like, we took way too much water, not enough food, and we were just useless. So we found the whole logistics incredibly hard work, just humping these things up, these slabs forever, and absolutely exhausting. But the climbing side, when it was just front-on climbing, was okay. And the other thing I found there, which you didn't have in Wales, when it got scary, there was a bolt. So it was like, they didn't do that on the bloody slate quite. It was like, so it wasn't as scary as anything we've been doing at home at all. But then, but it was just really great granite climbing. And we sort of, we'd been there about eight weeks by then. We were getting used to the granite. And then you'd, from the free blast, you move across onto the crack systems. And this is where things start to go downhill really fast. Where the monster off width, which is like 180 foot off width or something like that. Given 510D, I think, which I think translates to what, E2? I probably don't, I probably, yeah, I don't mind saying this. That might be the closest I've been to crying on a climb. I mean, literally, it was, it was so frightening. I mean, we had two cams. One was like a cam six and one was like a cam five or five and four. I can't remember, but we had two cams. And you know how you climb these things where you have that clipped onto a sling in the crack and you move up and you slide the cam with you. I think maybe these days people have a few more of them, but we only had two. So you're sliding these things up and then when you get to a certain point, you leave one behind and then you're left with another one to slide up. So I sort of set to work, realized I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't realize how grim off with climbing actually is if you don't know what you're doing. And I remember I got about 50 foot. I left the first bit of gear after about 40 foot and then I got about 50 foot above that I was exhausted like heat exhaustion I would 
cut everywhere, falling out of this thing. I was like crimping edges at the back just to hang in for dear life. Looking down, there was ledges 100, 110 foot below me where I was pretty much facing those. And then shimmying up the off width, just in absolute despair. And then there's like a slight pod bit. And I can see a bolt about 10 foot higher and it kind of opens out a bit. And the cam I'm sliding just falls out because it gets too wide for it. And so suddenly I've got this cam that's not only just sliding out, it's opened up and got a bit stuck sideways. And I'm like looking down and it's like literally going to lob a hundred odd foot, possibly hitting ledges. Can't, it's not like even on edges where you can shake out. You just half rammed your body in this thing. It's just so frightening. It was unbelievable. And then <laughs> this is, this is this, then they kind of got sort of funny, kind of sick. But there's a guy called Scott we'd got to know. And he was on the shield to the right of us. And all I could hear was, Badge! And I was like, I was like looking up, what the hell is that Badge? And I look up and it was Scott. And he was sort of, sort of, sort of looking up. You're gonna die! <laughs> Bailing down. <laughs> then he starts pissing himself laughing with his bean layer. I look down, Bransley's chuckling away. I'm on the brink of tears, like thinking this is game over. And half the crag have been fits of laughter. And I'm like, fuck me, this is like another level out here. But I managed to actually crimp my way up the back of the off width and got my finger in the bolt. It was one of those desperation things. Well, I was literally, I probably was going to fall 100 foot to ledges now. It was like all my gear had gone, everything. It was just horrendous. Managed to get the cam back above the pod. I mean, it was so bad. And so I took a belay on that bolt. I refused to carry on. And I brought Ben up. And then Ben led the last 50 foot, which was, he felt it was just a trouble. We had a really hard time. And so that was pretty traumatic. And then we were a bit like, well, yeah, that was bad. It took about half a day as well. But then after that, we sorted ourselves out. And then pushed on, and then, and then we were sort of moderate success. We we're back into normal climbing. I, I, I led the Boulder Problem Pitch, um, so I'm very pleased with, um, which was deemed the, the it was given 13A, I think. I don't know if it still is, but that kind of felt okay because we were back into our world. It was little edges, little crimps, little dynamic moves, and we we're, we're, were cool with that. And then Ben did the Endurance Corner, which was an incredible lead, which is the Big 12C afterwards. Then I did the traverse pitch. And I think that was the bit that really made me realise how great that sort of, you, you It's like 12A, sort of 7A plus with a bit of gear, and you, you swing around the corner. And I think they say in free solo, this is possibly the most exposed position on L cap. And I still remember it now. You just pull around, suddenly 3,000 foot opens below you. The whole other side of L cap appears in front of you. And you still got to do you're like yarding away. I remember that moment, just having your mind blown. So like these 18 year olds just sort of free climbing up these big walls. And I think that was where it was a bit of a, a moment changer for me, realizing one, that this is the sort of terrain we love, this real adventure, but without being deadly either. It wasn't death, it was just proper adventure, but also within our ability. We were like, we can do this stuff. Maybe not the off wits, but everything else we can kind of do. So. Ben and I got to the top, obviously, hadn't totally freed it, but very pleased with ourselves because we'd gone from, like you say, the start arriving in Yosemite and El Capitan was this inconceivable thing just for the gods. It was Lynn Hill, it was Alex Schuber, it was no one else, it was Hugo Hiriyama, it was 
These are climbing gods. A couple of 18-year-old scruffy gits from the UK had managed to have a pretty good effort of free climbing the whole thing. I think this part of the story lends a really interesting quality to Leo's tale about El Nino. Because while El Nino was Leo's first big wall, Patch had already been out and done this with Ben Bransby. And that had opened his eyes up to the fact that he was good enough to do some of these things. And in his eyes, Ben and Leo were climbing better than him. So why wouldn't you know, why wouldn't Leo go for this? The other interesting thing, I think, is that Patch is very focused on this idea of like this community around him and all of these people who inspired him that he climbed with. But when he's in Yosemite, he's the one that's off climbing, while Leo's the one doing all the socialising, getting to know everyone at Camp 4. And it seems like, actually, Patch really has to talk Leo into the idea that he's going to do a big wall, and it's definitely doable. Perhaps the craziest part for me is the idea that Patch is talking about all of these people he really admires, and the Huber brothers are talking them into having a go at Freerider, into looking at El Nino. But they're saying, probably quite sensibly, why don't you check out the first few pitches or Abin, have a look at the crux? And Patch is just saying, no, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to start at the bottom and we're going to climb this thing because that's what climbing is. We were pretty arrogant and we were, we were quite obsessed with this ground up idea. It's just how we did everything. Yeah, well, some of the decisions we made on that trip, I look back and I wonder how we rationalised it. Certainly on El Nino, there's a couple of them where I'm like, how did we rationalise that decision and go ahead with it? I do wonder. But, but the key thing for Ben and I, and, and this is true, it's not that dangerous. I mean, it is dangerous, obviously. It's not as dangerous as what we were doing at Gogarth. Or in the slate quarries, and I mean, there's danger. The slate quarries, there's sharp edges everywhere. There's loose blocks, the bolts, the gears far apart. It's just dangerous. Um, this didn't feel like that. There's a lot of bolts, and the gears bomber. So in that sense, it was felt. That's why it felt okay. It was just let's just crack on, and it was it was hard work, and it's tiring being on the wall for three nights, four nights, and all that. But we kind of loved it. It simplified life so much. It's like, what are you doing today? Well, I think we're going climbing. <laughs> it's like we're halfway up the bloody crag. So it was it was nice in that sense. So when it, so we got back down to the valley and the Hubers all congratulated us and all really chuffed and said, great effort. And then they, he, Alex took me off to teach me how to climb off with on some boulder problems. And so we had a little lesson with him because he was like, how the hell could you have not done the off with, you idiots? And do it, you're doing the 12Cs, you're not doing the 10Ds. So we went a little lesson with him, which was good fun, and Thomas. And then I sat down with Leo for a meal and just chatted to him about it and what had gone on. And we only had about three weeks left in the valley. I've been there just over two months. And I kind of said it, and Leo said it. I was like, Leo, you're the best climber of this crowd. You haven't done anything yet. Like, you haven't done anything. He's, he's like met everyone. He'd impressed everyone with his bouldering and jumping around and doing what he did. And he, and he was amazing, but he hadn't actually done anything. And I kind of said, said, Leo, look, I said, I've just done a 13A pitch and it was fine. You'd have on sighted it, I think. And look, and El Nino, which we're talking to the Cubans about, it, I, we know it's all slab, vertical corners. There's no cracks on it. I said, the cracks were a nightmare. And I was a bit like, I think you can do this. And I think we're going to do it ground up the same way we did on because the Hubers said the same they were a bit like come down from the top and practice things and then they said why don't you go and work the first three pitches see how you get on and then maybe try and do the route afterwards and I think Leo even made a throwaway comment was like sod that we're going to 
flash the old. He even made like a throwaway comment, and it kind of amazed me. So he was like, okay. So then we we bumped into Conrad Anker. That was very fortuitous because he taught us how to build a portal edge and gave us this portal edge to build. And, and he gave us the proper haul bag and he gave us a few bit of tips actually. And then, so yeah, so Leo and I, it was actually, we set off on my birthday. And then, so the day before was when the photo was taken with the Hubers in the meadow, which appeared, I think, on the front cover of On the Edge. There was the Alex Thomas Mirno. That was the day before we set off. And then that evening... We all drank a bottle of tequila and climbed Midnight Lightning at midnight. And then it was because it was my birthday. It was like, oh, happy birthday, patch something, and we all pissed on tequila. And then, so we got up the next morning and then took all our bags to the base of El Nino and sort of set off. Yeah, and that was kind of then when it, the first time Leo had actually pulled onto El Cap, which was kind of extraordinary. It was almost like he knew what he was doing, but he hadn't done anything. Yeah, he was meeting all the right people, he was connecting, and he just had this big deal with Berghaus, so he was going to be a professional climber for sure. He was, he was, I don't believe in destiny, I don't believe people do any of that stuff, but it, it felt like he was on this path which was quite clear of where he was going, and he was good at it. He was very confident, and he was, he was still a kid then, he was a bit, maybe a bit more... He grew up to be more a, a good, confident speaker. Back then, he was a little bit more of a cocky kind of youth. He used to wind people up a little bit. But he delivered on it as well. I mean, his, by that point, his climbing achievements were extraordinary. Um, but I think it was still on his mind that he hadn't done anything. And he'd done all the important stuff. He'd met Dean Potter. We'd become good friends with him. We'd met Cedar. We'd met Chongo Chuck. He talked about the slat line and... We'd done, he'd done all, all the stuff that you'd do if you wanted to become part of the Yosemite scene. He'd done all the groundwork. And then all he had, then the next bit came is, is this guy the real deal or not? And which made me put a bit of pressure on himself. I don't know. He wasn't acting like he had. And then so I think we, I'd, in my head, I'd broken down the barrier of El Capitan with Bransby on Freerider. It dawned on us. Yeah, we, we, we can do this. Yeah, so we sat at the base. And there's like a little VS you do. You've got the footstool. We climb this VS. And we sat at the top. We're looking up. And we're like, right, well, 13B, first pitch. And should we have a go? And I think Leo says. And then he sets off. And I'm sort of belaying. And he virtually on-sites it. And he does. He just grabs one quick draw quite near the end. As if it's an awful... It's the only bolt on the whole route that's probably placed in the wrong place. It's a really balancey on-off position. Quite a hard move. And you have to clip in the middle of that. If the bolt had been eight inches lower, I think Leo would one side it. And you're going to go about 50 foot. And he grabbed that quick draw, clipped it, and then scampered to the finish. And then he came down and did it first red point. And then I flashed it seconding him. So we were a bit like, shit, that's 13B. And then he flashed the next pitch. No, he didn't. He chalked the hold, stupid. No, that was right. This There was two pitches in on site. This was so stupid. The next pitch is 7C plus, but about 20 foot long. Really short boulder pop. He just clicked the first bolt, pulled up, looked at the holds, brushed them, tried them, came down, just flashed it easily. And I was like, Leo, stop grabbing quick jaws. <laughs> it's like, you don't need to. And then he also, then the third pitch, the A-T-A pitch, he completely onsighted, which was just ridiculous. It's a huge pitch, 30, 40 meters. Climbing incredibly, like just super precise, super confident, moving fast. 
and just hammered his way through it. So from there, we then carried on, did about another five or six pitches, which are like E2 to like E5 maybe. Um, And we did all those. And then from there, there's still some hard climbing. There's a 7C plus pitch, which is called the M&M Flakes. It was an 8A plus pitch. Really, that was real Slate-esque. I mean, I think this is why we, we were really in our comfort zone. This was like Slate climbing. If you were an 8C sport climber who'd been hanging out in Books or Oliana or somewhere, you'd find this transition quite hard. But if you'd been spending all your time trying to climb Johnny Dawes routes in the slate quarries, this stuff felt quite normal. It was like razor edges, nails behind holds, tiny footholds. It was, it was that world, really. According to the topper we had, we'd done the line share the hard pitches. So we'd done the two 8A plus pitches. We'd done the one of the 13Bs, and we'd done two 13A pitches. And above was one 13B pitch, which was the great roof. But to get to that, you do this big arc of about five or six pitches. And that was more like Gogarth climbing. That was very not a typical uh, Yosemite. It was chossy corners. Pretty grim, to be honest. It was all like loose blocks and flakes. And this is stuff that I think the locals don't like it. It's like this dollarite broken stuff but well, we loved it we were just like right so you swing out and we did all of that and that was just like on site it was like being on main cliff and doing four big routes on main cliff it's like e6 e5 e65 it was just big chossy corners and long pitches brilliant climbing absolutely brilliant and we on site all those and then went around and you still do this arc where we tied these two ropes together and then abseil back down to the big sur these two eight mil ropes, sort of one and a half thousand foot up, horrendous abseil. And then we got back to our tent. And so all we had left above us, well, all we had quite a lot. We had the, the big roof, the black roof, and they call it. And then there was about 10 pitches, about a thousand foot to the top. We were just having the time of our lives. It was just like, right, we're in the middle of El Cap. We're on site in the sort of routes we've always loved doing. And now we're stuck in a storm, being battered left, right, and <laughs> It was just proper adventure stuff. And we were just having the time of our lives, really. We, we had this ridiculous debacle. We actually had a massive argument about the strength of short bag straps. It was like, <laughs> Leo had lost his short bag strap. And... Um, we were using my chalk bag and we were sharing it, which was a bit of a nightmare, actually, because the second never had a chalk bag on minging little crimps in the heat. It wasn't good. And then I lost mine. So I, I jumard up to the black roof. It was the worst experience of my life. One, it was terrifying. A fully stretched out, two eight mil ropes tied together, 2,000 foot up. Jumard 20 metres and you haven't moved. You've just taken the stretch out of the rope and then you finally get some traction. Horrendous experience. And I got to the top. And then Leo set off. This is where he lost, he's totally lost it with me. He was, um, so he started jumaring up and he took all the slack out of the rope. So he was still at the Big Sur. He'd jumared for about 20 metres, but hadn't moved. And he just started making the progress, which is when it starts to feel like you're getting somewhere. And I shouted out, Leo, I've lost my chore bag. <laughs> and he just like, that's what we were having this massive Barney. And I was like blaming him for losing his originally. He's blaming me. For, I don't know where it went. I don't know what happened. 
So he just had to then turn from ascenders to descenders, abseil for 20 metres and still not move. So he literally done a 20 metre Jumar, 20 metre abseil and still stuck where he started. He made his chalk bag out of um, a sleeping bag holder. It was genius, actually. So we put two wires in the rim, which popped it out. And it, we put like four chalk blocks in it. And it was just like this gigantic chalk bag. It was actually fantastic. So he made that. And then he had the GMR another 20 meters. And he was still at the big sur. So we so we'd done that morning. He'd done 40 meters of Jumaring and he was still at exactly the same place he'd started. So the poor bastard. And then he made his way up the two, two rope lines. And then we both sat below the big roof. And I think this is the most extraordinary days climbing I ever had. And I still find it hard to get my head around how we made such a decision. But it seemed kind of normal at the time. But now I think I'd never make the same decision of what we did. So we got there, then... Leo set off on the black roof and did incredibly on sight of it. It was tough, 13B. And it was actually quite powerful at the end. It wasn't in the... A lot of it was all... It was like an E6 Gogarth roof pitch to these pin scars on pegs, these big dynamic stabs with your feet on rubbish footholds. He onsighted that, which was a great effort. Real t skin of your teeth onsight. He was really fighting. Because now he really wanted it. He'd onsighted so much to that point. That was an amazing effort, and and I hadn't done one of the couple of th one of the thirteen C pitches and the thirteen A lo right lower down, so I was a bit like, well, I'll have a go at doing it, and I fell off the last move, um, and then pulled on and got to the B lay, and I was like, shut it. I made the decision not to red point it, which kind of meant I wasn't going to do the whole route, but I was fine with it. I was like, this is still out of the world kind of level and I knew that Leo was doing something a bit special here so just to be slightly below that I could live with I was quite happy but we had this conversation anyway so I was like look I'll second it and strip it and then so the fixed lines were going down to the big sur and we had a rucksack on my back which had two pairs of fans trainers in um, one jacket a bottle of water and two Mars bars and there was a thousand foot of climbing above us which had about four probably E6 pitches, two or three, five pitches, an E4, an E3, and an E1 sort of thing. There's a lot of climbing to the top from there. And we looked at Leo, and I was like, what are we going to do? And I was like, are we going to go for the top? Because the alternative was we'd have to get all of our stuff, bring it all the way up. This is what people do now, and take it over the big roof, and there's a big ledge system up there, and they camp there. And we were a bit like, no, let's just go for the top. <laughs> and... And the, the stupid decision, I think, was, or maybe it's stupid, but very bold. We, we, none of us ever want to do that Jumar ever again. So I unclipped the fixed lines and just dropped them, which were like 350 foot down to the ledges. So I dropped the fixed lines because the plan was we came back a week later, went up to the Big Sur and stripped all our gear out. So we just left everything on the wall. But because we didn't want to go back up those Jumar to undo the fixed lines, I dropped them then. So we were about... 1,200 foot from the top of El Cap. Had quite a big morning already. I'd just dropped all our fixed lines and we had a bottle of water and two Mars bars. And then I seconded the big roof and got to Leo and it was like, right, we better get moving. But then you go and climb 500 foot almost diagonally up and rightwards. So you're miles away from there anyway. So I don't really know what we'd have done if either we got hurt 
but it didn't enter our heads. And because we were on sighting, we had no idea what was up to what was coming. We'd never been an El Cap before. Leo hadn't. And so the next, I think the next ten hours is probably the best I climbed in my life, and possibly the same for Leo. Even though they weren't as big in numbers, it was just flawless. So I on sighted the seven C pitch, which I was really pleased with straight after that because that was quite high grade for me to on sight. Leo on sighted the 12C pitch. I on sighted the 7B chimney pitch. Leo on sighted the next 12C pitch. We just going and going. And we were just flying up these things. And then it got dark. And we had about four pitches to go. And I on sighted a 11D in the dark, which felt just again back into this is what we were climbing was about. I was with my mates. This is now a massive adventure. It's pitch black, climbing E4s and head torch on site. Looking down, you can see the cars like these little specks 3,000 feet below your feet, just plowing away up these walls. It was just incredible. And then there was like an E2 and then an E1, and then we just got to the top. I think back about that decision to just drop everything and just be this little cell of two people with virtually no supplies. I mean, that, that for a day out in Wales to do four or five E6s and a few E5s in the same day would have been a massive day. Probably bigger than the day we ever did. But deciding to do that, starting 2,000 foot up El Cap, needing to on-site every pitch, it was kind of ridiculous. It was an incredible feeling. It was just, I think Leo talks about that as well, how it's, he was never quite able to recapture that sense of pure adventure, where it was just all new. Climbing stories often follow a pretty similar path. Climber tries a climb, they succeed, or they fail, hopefully spectacularly. And there are so many echoes in this episode of previous stories from Factor 2. Outdoing the previous generation, revering the on-site or the ground-up ascent, bravado of youth, and it's even down to those little echoes of the simplicity of life on the crag. All the way through, there's this kind of etymology of ambition. Every generation of climbers influenced by what went before. But the idea of the hero as a mentor is something that passed me by in my own climbing. I I never really had that more experienced climber who saw it as their job to tell me how to build my own CV and gave me the confidence to do it or directed my ambitions. And I do wonder if that kind of apprenticeship still exists in the same way. It it must, surely, but it's, it's not a common theme that you hear these days. If you do have that person, why not share it on the forum? Because it'd be quite interesting to see how prevalent that is in climbing culture today. Of course... For some, there's a point where you make the transition into being the hero or the mentor yourself, even if you don't really recognise it. And at that point, your goals are going to change, your community is going to evolve with you. I don't know, I never thought, I think I never thought I was that good at climbing as well. I always thought that Leo and Ben and the others, well, they were better than me. And I was quite, I didn't mind that, it was fine. I always thought I was a little bit lucky to be climbing with such talent and such brilliant climbers, and I never quite put myself quite on that same level. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. If you'd like to be a hero, why not send someone a link to this? 